Hi and welcome to the podcast, you're having tea with Alice. This week's episode is with Jared McKenna, friend of the podcast, and we spoke about some of the things that he is wrestling with as a very devout and active pacifist Christian in the modern world. This is a conversation with a lot of citation, which I very much enjoy. I think we're in a world where not enough people cite enough things. Uh, Sources-wise, he cites both secular texts and scripture and uh, I just found it a really interesting conversation. I hope you enjoy listening to it as much as I enjoyed having it. I'm winding up in Melbourne this week. The Melbourne International Comedy Festival is finishing on Sunday and then I will be in Perth from the 9th to the 11th and in Sydney from the 16th to the 19th of May and then back out in the world somewhere. So it's all very exciting. I should say thank you so much to my Patreon subscribers. It's uh it's really, really useful, particularly at this time of year. It allows me to keep doing what I'm doing despite the fact that I am monstrously busy and have no in influx of cash because all of your money goes out during the festivals and then you have to wait to see if you've made any money until usually months later. The admin on festivals tends not to be very good, but uh, also just for the emotional support, the... Uh, artistic support and the general ephemeral sense of universal support emails to alicerfraser at gmail.com tweet me at alliterative or again patreon.com slash alicefraser i'll talk to you again next week bye who are you and what are you drinking i'm jared Saul mccann and mm-hmm. uh this is water pretty Pre-tea, um, <laughs> that with which tea cannot be made. Do you drink water by preference? Are you a water drinker? Um, I am a water drinker. Is that a is that a personality type? Is it, does that well, I was reveal something about, about my psyche? That not necessarily, but sometimes <laughs> you know, not making a choice is seen as a choice. Uh, oh, and you see water as as an. A not choice. It's a not choice. It's the default, right? It's an apathetic I'll drink something, and if you choose to, to drink something that isn't anything, it's water, right? I, I'll dr- yeah. I drink a lot of water, but it's for for example, I was thinking about this in the context of a friend of mine uh, posted a picture of her with unshaven underarms, and people see that as quite an aggressive choice, hmm. but in fact, it is just not doing anything. I it's a choice heard to not act. A story about somebody shaving their underarms on public transport <laughs> <laughs> I talk about that in, in my show oh. uh, yes which you saw last night um, <laughs> which was brilliant oh, and everybody you. should see and hear ends the plugs but it's finally come together it's that very odd thing of, of putting a show together in front of an audience where you want every audience to have the best possible experience but by definition, it only gets better in front of an audience and mm. you need to figure out what works and what doesn't. You can't figure it out on the page. Well, what was nice for me is being there with uh, Gabrielle Dimitri, who's an amazing artist. And this morning, Gab's talking about things that were still making her giggle. Oh, good. Which is, which is nice. The, the after, after effect, the, I like in the that. aftermath of your comedy, the next day, people are still giggling. Yeah, that makes me very happy. That's the goal. Hopefully it comes up a year from now and she'll giggle. Because <laughs> comedy can feel very transient in that way. Mm. Of, of You want to write a show that is enjoyable for an hour while the people are sitting there, 
but then you don't want it to be that it then disappears from their minds without a trace. And yet there's there's something about the way you even write and the the focus and discipline of your comedy that whether it's um, uh, like classic Alice lines that I quote from you all the time and things like... Um, who am I to experience imposter syndrome? Like, <laughs> <laughs> um, I literally have friends who say, who, who says that again? Alice, go see her shows. But, um, uh, or, or even how you structure jokes around strange danger and who you really should be fearing uh, around the realities of oh, yeah. familial and domestic violence and... Um, uh, I like that kind of... I, I like humour that haunts you, not just entertains you, and, and you do that well. I, I hope I do that well, although sometimes I feel like I would like to just be funny, you know. Sometimes we don't get to choose our own pathologies. What I want to do is spend 10 years in the industry building a reputation for like really thoughtful, interesting, engaging comedy and then do one show that's an hour of me falling over on banana skins. <laughs> Just 100 <laughs> banana skins on the stage and me falling over and getting back up. Alistair's slapstick. <laughs> I think that would be but so it, much fun. It, like Because it would be you doing it after a decade of your volume of work, it would still be read as meta-commentary <laughs> on the whole field of stand-up. Yeah, like, maybe. Um, that, that's your gig. That's your, And that's not to... Um, I think that's a, a gift, particularly to those for whom that's not what they do. I, I know that, um, like, the way that you've been celebrated in Edinburgh, um, there, there's a scene there that um, sees the, there's room for that, and it looks like that's opening up more and more in Australia, where it's not seen as a threat or... Um, but, but something to add to the, the richness of the scene here. Yeah, I've always been interested in how difference can be seen as threatening. Hmm. And I, I never really understood that as someone who's always been different and never felt like much of a threat to anyone. Uh, Given our ancestors, why would we ever ponder those yeah. questions so deeply? <laughs> well, uh, yeah, you, you have Jewish background as well, don't you? It's a... Uh, yeah, it's an odd thing. I mean, I sort of get it. I understand the conservative point of view, which is, you know, we've got a sweet deal, don't ruin it. Hmm. Um, I was thinking about this in terms of, of privilege the other day, and I'm, I'm trying to put a bit into my show this year about, you know, the idea of privilege, which I already have a bit of a beef with, because I think a lot of the things that are characterised as privilege ought to be rights. For everybody and mm. characterising them as privilege puts them in the position of something that ought to be taken away from some people who have it rather than given to everyone. Have I ever told you about one of my big mentors was uh, a gentleman who always insisted I called him Uncle Vincent. Mm -hmm. but he was uh, Dr Vincent Harding who was a, a historian, um, next door neighbour of Coretta Scott King and Martin Luther King Jr and wrote the first draft to Martin Luther King's Beyond Vietnam speech, which was given a year to the day before he was assassinated and was uh, a key player in the, the architecture of what's popularly become known as the civil rights movement, but they described as the freedom movement. And he, he used to say, uh, he's no longer with us, he used to stop me and he'd say, Jared, and he had this very slow way of talking, find another word. It is not a privilege to benefit from the oppression of others. 
and then he'd wait for you and give you the the time to try and find a new vocabulary to actually describe something in ways that um, you know spending time with special friends is a privilege it's it's a weird vocabulary to then use to talk about something around systematic oppression which is deliberately made invisible yes and I think I have again some I think that's an interesting point where privilege is riding on somebody else's back Hmm. but I think a lot of the things that are characterized as privilege uh, are not a zero-sum game. They're characterised as a zero-sum game. So on yeah. one hand, there is this very strong argument to be made that a huge amount of, of s- the progress of civilization has been built on the backs of uh, slaves or underpaid workers or, in the case of um, capitalism, the sort of uh, benefits of ha- being able to pay people their market wages, which are much less than your mm. costs. Uh, so that, I think, is worth characterising as a zero-sum game because it doesn't happen unless somebody else suffers for it. Mm. You don't get a $2 pair of jeans right. without somebody suffering. You don't somebody pays. Yeah, Somewhere you, along the line, somebody's paying. Yeah, like, you don't get a, a pack of chicken nuggets for a dollar without some creature suffering yep. and probably some workers as well. Yep. Like, there's no... That's a zero-sum game. Mm. But walking down the street without being harassed by police is not a privilege. Yeah. That's, that's something that everybody could have, you know? And with the collapse of narratives that can actually hold us other than consumerism, it's very hard to imagine or picture an alternative. Like um, Sir Uncle Vincent's language would be the beloved community, uh, um, which was language that was important in the freedom movement uh, to talk about the kind of world they're seeking to construct and live into in the present. Um, uh, John Lewis, who's now Senator John Lewis, but um, uh, was a part of SNCC, the Student Nonviolent Organising Committee, and um, uh, was there in Selma um, uh, and spoke at, um, uh, on the same day that Martin Luther King made his I Have a Dream speech. He makes the the same point that at the the inability to think of something different means that we can't relate to one another in such ways that it becomes an act of hope like the kind of dignity we give one another is not a um, is not a denial of the horror of what we're living through but a protest to it that insists the way that we relate um, can actually point to something different which I mean so much of what passes for you know Twitter conversation um, cheapens the discourses and traditions on both sides, and and um, leftism is a tradition. Like the, it's a um, uh, as is conservatism, like and the belief in the importance of institutions and preserving knowledge. Like to take that at its best. Um, like you can't say there's anything conservative about neoliberalism. Like it's no, it, it's um, r- radical in the most horrible sense. Yeah, traditional conservatism is what we have is good. We should protect what we have. Yeah, and that is a totally laudable aim. Yeah, and and the strangeness of Australian politics at the moment, like being in in this town and seeing, um, you know, billboards for. Um, uh, 
Josh Freinberg um, changed to billboards for um, his name is QC has done wonderful uh, um, he's running for the Greens but he's more of a Malcolm Fraser kind of little L liberal um, and he has cute glasses and he, he's and I just can't remember his name. I don't know many Julian QCs. Burnside. Julian, I was Julian Burnside. Say, I don't there know many uh, QCs other than Julian Burnside who and are political. And there you go. You just I don't know if there's name. many, um, you know, richer symbols of like the collapse of traditions behind parties for a kind of tribal. Um, we relate to political parties like football team kind of stuff than than him being with the Greens at the moment, I find that really uh, surprising. And um, Well, I mean, the Greens are an interesting party. I will often vote for them in hmm. in my very safe Liberal seat as a protest vote because yeah. I, what I want that vote to say is, uh, can we focus a little bit of attention on the environment, please? Hmm. I know the Liberals will get in again and again and again, but if they see a certain proportion of, the, of their constituency voting Green, then they'll ideally adopt some green policies if the greens had a chance of getting in power i don't know that i would necessarily vote for them because i think a lot of their policies for the environment are not realistic or thought through they are an opposition party and they think of themselves as an opposition party and so they are not necessarily realists and you're voting in new south wales yeah yes because it's also a question of like which Greens? Like, is it um, the Greens of New South Wales have a very different flavour to the Greens of Tasmania and um, Bob Brown and the Franklin um, uh, protests, or Greens Western Australia, which um, uh, so former Senator Josephine Valentine um, has been a major mentor for me, both formally um, after being given the Donald Groom uh, Peace Award uh, and informally just over the years of. Um, sitting at her feet, learning from her, um, uh, being involved in activism with her. And Greens WA has a strong Quaker base, that um, historic uh, peace church uh, tradition. So Greens WA actually wouldn't gr join Greens National until um, their statement of uh, a commitment to non-violence was ratified, uh, which was resisted in part by New South Wales because of some of the tradition of uh, the Communist Party in New South Wales um, yeah, the and their involvement in... the Greens in New South Wales come out of that particularly in, in part, violent protest um, vibe. Of, of which um, they would be quick to point out um, that the system is violent and um, we need to be realistic and even though it's not where I'm coming from... Um, you have sympathy for that position or...? You try to understand that position because you are very much a non-violence person. You're a non-violent activist. You've got all these prizes for non-violence. Uh, how know, do you feel about violent protest, violent activism? I, I worry a lot. I had this experience recently running workshops with um, uh, people who the neighbourhoods they're from are referred to as townships in South Africa and uh, being in Cape Town and running workshops. And the danger of the language of non-violence is that for some people it's a concern for my hands being clean because they're not touched by the day-to-day -day violence of the systems in which, you know, back to your chicken nuggets and um, 
who makes them so cheap, like who's paying for it, or back to the uh, $2 shoes, like who, who is paying for it? Um, and there can, there can be ways of considering nonviolence that are more about one's innocence than it is about transformation. Um, uh, f for me, nonviolence, uh, like it's, it's a, it's a way of talking about a mystery that is a power that's um, a force more powerful, as Desmond Tutu would put it. Okay, you've gone into religious jargon there. Thank you. I do. I do what I can. So lay that out specifically as a kind of a causal link. So when you say I think you the um, the reality of our world uh, that. Um, uh, coercion, violence uh, is what a lot of the systems we exist in hang together on and we're, we're schooled in mythology whether it uh, be coming out of um, Marvel or uh, DC or uh, just kids cartoons that you and I grew up watching and they look it's the spirituality of the Babylonian creation myths where um, Marduk, a male deity, uh, has to slay Chaos, who's um, uh, Tiamat, the, the female uh, deity, and out of that the world is created. And so, so the idea is that you can only uh, achieve justice through violence. Yeah, yeah, and the danger of call it like, so the term nonviolence um, in the 20th century became a, a way of, uh, in English, referring to this power and this uh, 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 tactic and strategy that over you know, 1.4 billion people were involved in in 1989 alone in terms of, um, not because of any philosophical commitments, but because it's those who don't have forms of, if, if you don't have the police on your side, if you don't have the military on your side, what is this force that is more powerful? So it was fascinating for me in terms of my mentors and um, my time studying in the US and uh, uh, here in Australia at the feet of people like Joe Valentine. Um, and Joe, she was nominated as a joint recipient of the Nobel uh, Peace Prize, um, is experimenting in a different kind of power, which isn't about purity, but is actually about entering into the suffering of others in such a way that it isn't perpetuated. Yeah, I, I think violence is a can be looked at as a system in the same way as capitalism can be looked at in, as a system. Mm. Capitalism has a, a point of view. It has mm -hmm. a, a motives and it has a, an urge within mm. it. The structure of it is a, is a consumption urge mm. and it can only grow and grow and grow, otherwise it doesn't succeed. Yeah. It only succeeds by perpetuating itself, spreading itself, growing itself. Yeah. Just like and cancer, like yeah. the only thing in the natural world that mimics that is... Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And that's a worrying thing, even though <laughs> it's worthwhile acknowledging all of the things that capitalism has achieved for the world uh, in terms of it is a, you know, it's an incredible way of getting things done and it seems to be the best way we've come up with that works with human nature uh, rather than against it. Yeah, and I think I'm violence not... is similar that it begets violence. It has, if sure. you, you, can, you can frame it as having an appetite for the proliferation of itself. Yeah, um, uh, like a, yeah, that it almost has its own um, a, a imagination. W with capitalism, I wonder it's how much we zoom out. I mean, Alice, we're living through this like unique pocket of history where um, 
these energy resources that have, haven't been able to be accessed um, until uh, this side of the Industrial Revolution, and they don't last forever. Mm. And in terms of us as a human species, here's our moment to do something with it. And I wonder, like, you know, now that we've reached peak oil and the reality is that it's harder and harder to extract stuff from the ground, regardless of the energy sources that are naturally shining over us each day, particularly in this part of the world. Mm. What 200 years from now people will think of like how we treated this moment in history and the potential and the possibilities we have. I think the stories we exist in um, dictate some of those responses. I think to talk about capitalism and the good that it's done um, is to ignore uh, in terms of the destruction of species, in terms of our unprecedented ecological crisis, in terms of uh, all of that is based on an understand like uh, uh, economy um, from the Greek um, oikos, meaning home or, or household, and um, uh, nomos in, in, in terms of um, law or um, order, mm. and how we've ordered our home as a planet is actually destroying that which creates yeah. a living system, I right? I feel like, it's like one of the biggest... I've said this before and I'll, I'll say it again, is that we are very good at mental arithmetic but very bad at mental calculus. <laughs> we... we uh, algebra, we don't do... We don't factor in X very well. Mm. If we can measure money, we know happiness is important, but happiness is X, and every time we do that sum, it comes out as zero because we can't really understand that mm. so if something costs money and makes more money we don't look at the other costs because they're difficult yeah. to measure as money yeah i think that's one of the biggest things that we've missed when building our systems yeah is it um graber's book debt like the impact that that had on me um in just terms of like our, our Wall Street each day trading, it's so bizarre. Like it's so, and it's not until the system crashes that we kind of get a little insight in. But 98% of all trading that happens any day is not in real material goods. Like you buying the microphone that you hold in your hand in exchange for uh, hours on a stage um, entertaining and pleasing and um, an, an audience, but is actually upon gambles of what something is worth or will be worth and other things losing and like it it isn't connected to any material no and it's a it's a, a sort of a guesstimate how much a ticket is worth to my show is a a guess of how much value it's going to bring to the person who sits in my show they yeah. might get nothing out of it they might walk away poorer for the experience or they might walk away with you know, a hundred dollars worth of value in their in their mind, or in the instance of occasionally, I get a really nice, uh, you know, email or letter saying, "Oh, I've quit my job and started doing something I love, or I've just gotten married, or whatever yeah. it is," and attributing something of that to my work. And yet, it, there's a social contract that says, "What you do, I value," and in yeah. in response to that, his rent, right? Like, yeah. like his. Um, a, a livelihood but so much of how the economy wor works has got nothing to do with the livelihoods of people um, so I'm in Melbourne at the moment yes. uh, I'm doing my masters in indigenous Christian theologies and um, 
Uncle Dr. Terry LeBlanc, who's a, a, a Mi'kmaq elder um, from the east coast of Canada, um, he really brings this out, that so much of how our current world works, regardless of what they think of metaphysics and whether there's a God or no God, is founded upon a faulty theology which comes at the cost of the earth and is, is dressed up in uh, Christian symbols. Like, you know your joke last night about um, what's his face and his 12 rules for the Canadian... Uh, uh, Jordan Peterson, Jordan yes. Peterson. Um, and how do you break it down? That he's a he says 60% uh, common sense, about 30% Christianity in disguise, and the rest is just nonsense. And the fact that it can be talked about as Christianity in disguise um, shows how little people have any... Um, the, the fact that he's a Jungian, like, and he's actually a very classical Jungian, so his understandings of quote-unquote Christianity and what he does with ancient myths and he likes to draw upon um, you know this uh, Constantinian Christendom empire holding hands with the church kind of understanding of these ancient uh, texts are important to the foundation of civilization. Um, the way he reads such texts are, are deeply anti Christian, like um, they're, they're extremely Gnostic, they're about secret knowledge, about secret wisdom for individuals to transform themselves um, rather than a social vision of what Uncle Vincent Harding would call the beloved community. So um, I find fascinating, and you know that he's um, debating Slavoj Žižek coming up. Are you going to watch that debate? I don't know, I feel kind of... Um, uh, like I have an appreciation for Zizek even just as a stand-up comedian. I, like, I think he's an amazing <laughs> entertainer. Um, uh, but what... I, I mean, Peterson doesn't have the intellect of um, Zizek a, at all, um, but often it's about what what needs are scratched by those who they're, they're hearing. Um, yeah, I think I think the most frustrating thing about Peterson is that he even the principles that he propagandizes uh, propagandizes yep. even the principles that he spreads through his words he's not very good at holding to them yeah you know he's the first person to say let's have a rational discussion about the points and not get emotional. And then he's the first person to get red-faced and shouty on a panel. He's... He, While talking about feminism with no understanding of feminisms. Like, it's, yeah. Yeah, or, or uh, you know, he'll say, let's don't lump me in with a big group of people who represent this point of view. I'm a very specific individual with a very specific viewpoint. And then anything that he doesn't like, he labels cultural Marxism... Yeah. In incredibly broad brush strokes. <laughs> yeah. It it does feel a little bit, you know, do as I say, not as I do, and I find that frustrating and annoying. Yeah. Uh, and to and watch. the the quote unquote Christ of Peterson is an archetype on which you can project um, uh, wholeness. Uh, it has very little interest with the historical brown skin Jesus of Nazareth living under, like the realities of Roman occupation or his crucifixion or the content of his message. 
um, but as a, how the West have taken these stories and um, yeah, and, he and sort that of is conflates kinda, Greco-Roman philosophy and the archetypes of Aristotelian reason and totally, rhetoric totally. with Judeo-Christian yeah. stuff, which is uh, far less reason-based. Yeah, w- which is common, um, but uh, like it, even the mainstream Orthodox uh, like uh, take of um, whether it's uh, the Roman Catholic Church or um, mainline Protestantism or Eastern Orthodoxy would all say is heresy. Like, much like the economic systems that are based on nothing, um, so is Peterson's understanding of these stories. Like, it's about uh, what they uh, evoke. So he, like, rails against postmodernism, and yet his, his reading of these sacred texts has little regard um, for, for Jewish or Christian traditions and how they would actually read these texts. Um, and so in a very real sense, uh, much like... You, and I think Jung's an interesting conversational partner. I've led, read lots of Jung stuff, and even though I'm not Jungian in um, uh, my approaches to um, psychology, there's lots to appreciate and learn there. But ultimately, um, uh, Jung's understanding sees um, uh, that which animates uh, evil, injustice and oppression traditionally referred to in a number of ways, such as the Satan or um, the Diablos or is actually, but you know, layman's talk, the devil mm. is a part of God, that the shadow is part of God. Um, mm. And so God is, is not light, um, but God is that projection of our darkness um, uh, upon, you know, uh, like Feuerbach's, like let's just project um, the best of us in the sky, um, while Peterson's approach is like, oh, let's make sure we approach, uh, project the worst of us as well. When, like, oppressed people, that's not what they're asking of the text, and it's not how the texts operate in the tradition. Um, and even the best of the tradition, which is involved in ongoing oppressions, will go, yeah, we're not supposed to do that. And that's what he completely misses. So when people go, like, Peterson is Christian, he, he's so thoroughly unchristian and it says a lot about the the um, consumerism which occupies religious and spiritual imaginations instead of anything that's actually got much to do with um, traditional understandings of the traditions. Well I think it's an interesting thing sort of to return briefly to capitalism before addressing your point. Mm. I think if you if you characterized uh, the capitalist process when it comes to like global impact as selling a chunk of your body mm. for money every day, mm. which is sort of even like that, that's not even a broad analogy. If, mm. you, if you look at the health impacts of corporate work, sure, uh, the stress, the distress, yeah. the, or the gig depression, economy. the suicide, and yeah, yeah, yeah. all of that. But if you think of it in a kind of a global scale, if you're if you're selling a strip of your body every day and making you know a hundred thousand dollars for every strip, yeah, for the first three months that looks like a great idea Mm. and then you realize you've got no legs left Mm. and yet you are still compelled to keep selling it and and to keep operating in a way where um we deal with exchanges that come at the cost of our dignity instead of actually restore dignity um our, our inability to think of ourselves as part of communities but as individuals and the complete poverty we feel with any kind of larger story that's why Peterson sells 
because he's able to take these texts and um, give an individual kind of self-help that helps me embrace stuff that I might not otherwise look like. Wonderful. But we need to do that in a larger societies as well instead of project it on, as he does, uh, the feminists or the cultural Marxists or those of us who um, are often accused of being uh, on the, the other side, um, uh, the fundamentalists or um, uh, the fascists or... We're all in this together. There's no way through this ecological crisis without... Without everyone without pitching everyone, in. And, and that's in no way to give excuses for, for not challenging um, uh, worldviews which deal in death dealing and come at the cost of real human life, which you know fascism always does. But it's like, what is our alternative? Like, we can be really good at calling people out, but what are we calling people into? What's, what's our vision? Where's the beloved community? What can we point to and go, this is what the world looks like done in a different way which is more humble and real and connected to the earth and connected to each other. Yeah, that conversation I had with you and Lisa Sharon Harper yeah, was Lisa's so wonderful. useful on that for me hmm. to articulate the idea of uh, in-group, out-group mm-hmm. stuff that's happening so much on the left at mm. the moment mm-hmm. and uh, the the comparison or uh, that she made of the difference between being inside a walled garden or outside a walled garden mm. in as your framing of what it is to be on the left mm. versus everyone pointing towards the same you know light in the sky everyone's mm. directing themselves towards one single end point mm. and then it doesn't matter how far away you are from that end point, how pure you are, so long as you're still facing in the same direction, point mm. moving in the same direction, yeah. it becomes much less sort of aggressive. Mm. It's much less, you know, I'm saying the right things, you're saying the wrong things, I'm in, you're out. Mm. And much more like, oh, come on this way a little bit more. I can see you're a few steps behind, but why don't we... Yeah, um, to take it back to um, Uncle Terry um, LeBlanc, he was talking today about the epistemologies of Mi'kmaq people, his traditional um, uh, people group, and how so much of the Western world looks forward to the future while they walk into the future backwards. So um, it, they I'd heard that, and I was never sure if that was a true thing. Uh, I'd always heard that as a, something that some indigenous tribes believed seeing yeah. the future as behind you and the past as in front of you, which is why you can see the past but not the future. Uh, uh, and I always thought was that might be a myth, but I loved it as a, as a framing of, of how to think about time. Yeah, uh, Uncle David uh, Moko, who's over from Aotearoa, New Zealand, um, he then quoted it in his traditional language in, in terms of the Māori uh, perspective and says um, this is the, the Māori proverb that means the same thing that we face and uh, he was even describing that on the marae, um, uh, when you are welcomed, um, you, you turn and um, it is the ancestors who are welcoming you. So when you turn, um, you're turning to face all those who are present with you. And so even if people are like, okay, metaphysically, um, I'm a materialist, what it is to consider the places we've come from in such a way that they're present with us, that they can animate a different future, uh, what is it to consider our, our great-grandmothers and their mothers in such way that their wisdom of surviving such like extraordinary situations has something to teach us right now? 
the, the amount of isolation and loneliness completely changes when we realise we're surrounded by a great host of witnesses. Now, for, for somebody like me, um, the word literal isn't helpful, um, but that being well, a practical reality. I mean, because... Um, when you say literal, I mean, why is that not helpful? What do we mean by literal? Like, l- literally, <laughs> it blew my mind. It's like, it, so it's not helpful in that way, but it's also... Um, I like. I had such a, a powerful experience recently um, teaching uh, in Ireland. So my dad migrated to Australia in the 70s. Um, Irish Catholic family, um, uh, families deeply involved in the troubles, and being at Glendalough, which is uh, um, where uh, Saint Kevin, who's a saint for. Um, uh, my ancestors on that side of the family had the birds preach to him um, and started this uh, a community of learning that h- helped pull the Western world out of um, uh, you know, th- the darkness of the Middle Ages because it was that these writings were preserved um, somewhere. Uh, being there and, and feeling in a, in a visceral sense that of course isn't literal um, but I felt my ancestors, like in, in ways that um, in ways that move me, um, that Peterson with the Jungian framework would go, uh, it's a luminous experience of um, here are archetypes that are alive in you, and in terms of the collective uh, subcon- unconscious, um, uh, that these are stories that you are accessing that's found across all cultures. Well, that's to that's to drag it into a. And a modernist narrative of Jungian psychology that isn't the story of my ancestors. Mm. Um, uh, so hands off my experience, mm. like Peterson. Like it, it's well, this was the thing that I was thinking about in this show particularly, that literal thing mm. of the idea that you can tell the truth mm. and it can reduce reality to the point of meaninglessness. Mm-hmm. That the things that you focus on... Um, are true Mm. but then there are other things that are also true and it's deciding which is an important truth Mm. which truth is important to focus on where we should be putting our attention and those are things that are never going to be fully rational Mm. and the only way that you can decide on them or frame them up or move them forward is with stories yeah so if we are focusing, again, to bring it back to our kind of original point to make this a, a neater conversation, if we're focusing <laughs> Sorry, on, on conversation with me. capitalism yeah. and we're focusing on the monetary gain of capitalism and not focusing on the fact that, you know, however many species a day mm. are being wiped out because we can't put a value on the life of <laughs> a frog, yeah. uh, I feel like it, it, that is... that's. It's true that we are doing better than we ever have in history before on yeah. a financial level. But there are 100,000 species of frogs that don't exist anymore. Exactly, yeah. And so it's where you put your attention. Yeah. On, on You see a successful um, woman in a CEO position and then maybe she's not a good mother. And the, a lot of the feminist narratives that you see nowadays would say it's not important. Why would you say that a woman has to be a good mother? At the same time, there is a cost there mm. that is 
real mm. and refusing to pay attention to it leads to a worse world. And, and the importance of those um, uh, liberal Western white forms of uh, feminism are often critiqued by um, uh, like the, the womanist um, tradition that took Alice Walker's um, language and um, located it in a very real concern of uh, women of colour um, saying that we don't have this highly individualised same sense of ourselves. What about family? Like that the, the role of mother isn't um, an individual thing that's delegated. It's a, it's a communal experience um, that doesn't have to be read as oppressive and the importance of people being able to have agency around those decisions in their own cultures of how they consider those roles. And, and that's, well, it, that's it, part of the, the problem of applying universal categories across the, the different conversations. It's counterintuitive right? that individualism has led to this outcome, mm. that the idea of women being allowed now to take positions of power in uh, you know, corporate structures, for mm. example, is not seen as a community project. It's seen as an individual project. Mm. Whereas if you had a family group or a community group that said you want to go and do that thing well we'll bear the cost we'll be the mother to that child mm. because the child needs a mother mm. you know or a father or a parent or you know i don't want to get yeah, into the politics of, the, of gender the, here but you know what i mean the bizarre idea and um like such a recent idea of the nuclear family family like that it's an isolated kind of like like dad's family all migrated and said so dad has seven brothers and four sisters and that's not our understanding of family that's not how and it, people from um, different cultures other than Anglo-Saxon know that that also doesn't fit in and so our friends make fun of the way that our families work and the, our families gather and um, that kind of thing but the the approaches to those things um, it's well, well, I was talking to my brother and his wife the other day and they were here with their daughter and they were talking about how uh, polyamory <laughs> but in, a, in this way of saying which my friend Carl Hand likes to say is definitely wrong because it's the mixing of a Greek and Latin <laughs> word Karen Martinstone doesn't like that either <laughs> but the, the point of it that they were saying someone said oh I think polyamory makes sense up until you have a child and my brother's wife, who's very conservative, said, actually, I think it only makes sense after you have a child because you just need someone to go to the shops. <laughs> like, you need someone who's there. You need, yeah. you know, the, 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 the parents that are so very much in the conservative framework, the only and most important thing to a child's well-being, are inadequate. Yeah. You need to have someone who's going to go up to the shops and get the ice cream or... Yeah. You know, you need someone who's going to hold the kids while you take a shower. Yeah. It's so hard to do with just two people, let alone one yeah, person. Totally, you know, it's, totally. it's an almost impossible task to bring up children. The only reason it's done is that it has to be done. Yeah. But it's not given the value that it ought to be given. Yeah. And after, you know, 15 or so years more, I mean, 15 in terms of communities that I've been a part of initiating, but seeking to live in community instead of like, um, uh, so, since my early 20s it's really hard like it's it's hard 
to learn to do conflict differently. It, it's hard um, to talk about money honestly with people from different backgrounds and different subtle ways of relating to those things. Um, it's uh, hard to, to trust others in such ways that you can rely on one another. Um, Arnie Patricia um, Courtney, who's one of the professors on Nates that I've been with this week, uh, Nates is where I'm doing um, uh, my masters. She talks about the West here are saying that it's not about being an individual, and they think we're saying you have to lose your individuality. She goes on to say, you find your individuality in community, but when you're all by yourself, you end up looking like everybody else. Well, you'll know that if you've ever gone on holiday on your own. You start to turn into an amoeba. You feel very unformed huh. in the absence. You go away to yeah. find yourself and you disintegrate. It's, yeah. it's a really interesting process. And I remember learning in history about you know the horribleness of, for example, the Middle Ages, where... Mm. And this was how it was taught to me, and it wasn't for a long time that I started to think that's an odd way to frame anything up, was that people didn't think of themselves as individuals, they only thought of themselves as their roles. Hmm. And it wasn't until, you know, we got, you know, people got started to learn to read and things that they began to think of themselves as individuals, hmm. which is, I think, nonsense. Hmm. Nobody ever just thought of themselves as a farmer and having no other personality or function. Mm. Of course, you had people, and people are always people. You have loud yeah. people, you have quiet people, you have generous people, you have greedy people, you have... And, and sometimes all the same person mm. at different times in different contexts. And I, But at the time, this idea that people didn't think of themselves as selves, only as yeah. roles, yeah, yeah. and that we've moved away from that, that was, yeah. that was presented to me as progress which it is on, on one hand, but also losing sight of your place in a community, your role in a community. This, uh, even things like class, which are mm -hmm. so oppressive and so constricting, mm. uh, getting rid of them without thinking about what they gave you. Seeing them as an unalloyed bad means that you lose the things that were good about them. Mm. And there's never just... You never have a system that operates for hundreds of years without there being something good about it. Mm. You know, the difference in the way they treat drug addiction now. They used to say, drugs are bad, they're the devil, get away from them. And ignoring the fact that for the people who were using drugs, there was something good about them. Mm. And if you figure out what the good thing was for them, what, they, what the drug gave to them, what it made them feel, mm -hmm. then you're much better at treating it because you can go, okay, that's the good thing. It comes with all of this bad, so it's not worth it to do it that way. But how mm. can we get you a proxy for that good thing, something that's as good or similar? Yeah. Yeah, it, it's like um, people misunderstand what Marx was saying where he said that religion was the opiate of the masses, much like our opioid crisis in the US at the moment, um, it's, it numbs the pain. And Marx was saying that like, it numbs the pain, but it doesn't actually address the disease. Mm. Um, and the, there's, I don't think that's the role of, of spirituality. I, I also don't want to take away from people who need pain numbed, but then we need to operate. And whether it's as an individual or as a society, we need to be able to not just find comfort um, in the suffering, but end the suffering. Like, at least if we're going to be faithful, um, for me, to the story that has claimed me. I, I loved what you are saying about when you go on holidays and you realise that 
It's starting um, to feel all mushy. <laughs> there, there's a real sense um, that, like, I know we've talked about Rene Girard um, before, uh, if people have listened to your podcast for that long, but one of my big influences is a French anthropologist, Rene Girard, and he says that our desires are not our own. Mm. Um, we learn our desires through community, that we're mimetic beings, um, and it's through imitation, mimesis, that we... Um, and that's why you can move cities and hang out with a new group of friends and suddenly like something that you really didn't like before. And you might do it now with like a, a clever sense of, oh, I know this is like uh, crass or a bit embarrassing or like I used to think it merely as pop culture. But it's the nature of, of who we are and why we can't imagine unless we turn around and face those that have gone before us and realise that there's incredible potential. Like we don't want to romanticise um, these things either like it, it's um, uh, but to take it back to Peterson and his like fixation on an uncreative response to Jung individualization is seen as the end like you becoming the real you um, and instead of what is your part to play um, uh, what are you serving what's the larger picture uh, who are we becoming that um, th there is no there is no me separate from us. Um, and that can be very hard to find a meaningful us today. I mean, just on a very small and selfish scale, stand-up teaches you that. Hmm. And that's this process of working with an audience. You, the, I can write a joke that I think is hilarious hmm. and you bounce it off the faces of an audience, it comes back as silent. It doesn't exist. It's not a joke. You thought it was a joke. You wrote it as a joke. You made it as a joke. You can try a couple of times. Maybe eventually you'll figure out how to say it so that it works. Yeah. But I'm not a comedian unless people laugh. Mm. There is no... What I say means nothing unless it's got some meaning to the person listening. Mm. It, has to, it has to engage. It's a two-way process. That's why a quiet audience is a betrayal. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but to a certain extent, people I've, I've heard a couple of people go, oh no, sometimes I just like to enjoy things quietly. And that's allowed. But it's also, it's like, it's like if, you, if I asked you on this podcast and then I just stared at you the whole time hmm. and didn't respond to what you were saying, you would very quickly wind down. Soundtrack to contemplative prayer or <laughs> meditation or like... <laughs> Yeah, but I mean, the silence you get from a crowd, much like those who practice any kind of daily silence, what arises from you? And I know that preaching is a very different art to, to stand up, but is the, in the same those internal wheelhouse. voices um, that some of the reason why people run from the silence um, is because what it gives voice to is that stuff that we don't want to hear within ourselves. And it's um, that sense of silence that actually draws it out um, in ways that heal us and we can leave it behind. But it's super threatening when um, it seems so loud and it seems like it's going to... Yeah, silence is a, a form of speech as much as anything else. Hmm. And it's not an appropriate form of speech at a stand-up comedy venue. <laughs> and yet you use silence really well. Like, oh, yes. Yeah. Like the, the, there's... Um, you know, there are different. There is the silence which allows nothing to speak and suffocates, and there's a silence which is actually allowing that which is not named to speak. And there, the, the silence you experience uh, 
waiting to renew a driver's license um, is a very different silence to a Quaker meeting. Like it's yes, <laughs> you, you know what I mean. Like it's. Um, We'll have to meet up again and, and talk about silence, but I should I wind things up. I'm about to go, speaking of silence, to a blind comedy gig, a blackout comedy gig, uh, where the audience will be uh, having blindfolds. Nice. Which is going to be an interesting experience. Wow. I'll have to figure out how much of my performance is in uh, my physicality. <laughs> uh, but tell people where they can find you in the world or online. I know you have an extremely popular podcast. Uh, it's doing well. If people would like to hear um, uh, yourself or Will Anderson or Tom Ballard or um, Susan Carline or any number of surprising people um, talk about a passage of the Jewish and Christian scriptures, Inverse Podcast um, is a place to find that or at Jared McKenna on the medias of social um, uh, can be other ways to connect. But, um, yeah, there's a bit of fun for going deeper in sacred texts if people are interested. Do that. Look it up. Uh, I, I highly recommend it. Thank you so much for having tea with me. Love you, Alice. Love you too.